Um, take out your Bibles now and turn to Judges chapter 17, um, page 216 in the Pew Bible. We're done with Judges. Um, don't get too excited. Um, not the book, but the individuals. Um, we now come to the conclusion of the book um, with just a few weeks left. And remember, this is a pretty bleak book. And also remember that I forgot to dismiss the children. Um, so dismiss children um, or child. Um, you are dismissed uh, at this time. Sorry about that. Thanks for being patient with me, Raina. Um, judges. Bleak, depressing, um, weird book. And the end is the most um, difficult um, part. Uh, there's a book that I had to read um, in high school. Um, it was called Things Fall Apart. Um, you guys read that still in high school, Nicole? All right, Nicole's my English expert. Um, she's an English teacher. Um, I'm sure most of you haven't read it um, because no one reads what they're supposed to read in high school. Um, sorry, Nicole. Um, but long story short, um, basically the book is about things completely falling apart for this African man, um, Okonkwo. Um, and spoiler alert, um, the book ends with him killing himself. Um, you guys weren't going to ever read it. Um, so I don't feel bad about that. Um, but everything just falls apart. And I think that would be a pretty good summary of the book of Judges, um, especially here at the end. Everything falls apart. Um, and here's what these last few chapters are about. These few chapters are about why everything falls apart. So far we've just been generally told that people were doing evil in the sight of the Lord and they were going after idols. Well, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we're about to find out. We've been seeing kind of the forest of their problem. Um, now we're about to fly in amongst the trees and get two very specific, very graphic stories that illustrate the people's problems. This first story, these next two chapters, is about bad religion. And then the second story, the last three chapters, is about bad morals. The first is about false believing, and the second is about false living. And that order is important. False believing always ends up leading to false living. False worship is always going to end up leading to immoral living. All right, this may not seem like it on the surface, this story, because you're going to read it and you're going to stare blankly at me um, afterwards. But this is actually quite relevant. Because the problem here in this story is not that they were worshiping false gods, right? Uh, most of you aren't out here. Uh, Miss Richard comes from a context where there's people worshiping thousands of other false gods. Um, that's not an issue that I'm too worried about you guys struggling with. But the problem of chapter 17 is something we do often struggle with. They're not worshiping the wrong gods, but they are worshiping the right god in the wrong way. So this is a story about worship, but it's about wrong worship. The Bible is pretty clear that not only does God, is He concerned that we worship, but He is concerned how we worship. So I want us to look at how the characters in our story this morning get the right God wrong, and how they get worship wrong, and I want to look at some of the ways that we tend to do that today. So we're talking this morning about good religion gone bad. We're looking at false religion and what it looks like. There are three things that characterizes false religion from our passage. False religion reinvents God. It worships God wrongly. And false religion always tries to use or manipulate God. Let's read the passage first. We've actually got a short one um, this week, so we're going to read the whole thing, um, and then we'll, we'll talk through it. Judges chapter 17, starting in verse 1. I'll read it for you. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. 
And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Now let's pray, um, and then we will continue. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege that it is to get to stand and, and deliver your word right now. Um, I thank you um, for the privilege of all of us that it is to sit under your word and, and to hear um, your word. Father, it's not about my words, um, about my creativity or ingenuity or, or humor or lack thereof, but it's about your word. Um, Lord, So I pray that you would bring it to life in our hearts. I pray that you would apply its truths um, to every one of us. Father, show us where we struggle um, with false religion and wrong worship. And ultimately, point us to your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Right, so this is the first time in a long time that we're not starting off by being introduced to a new judge. Um, no more judges. We've just now got this man, Micah, who will be kind of the main character of the next two chapters. And his name, ironically, means who is like Yahweh. But the details at the beginning of the story are a little bit unclear. Um, someone has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from Micah's mother. That is a significant sum of money. So remember, the, the priest, um, the Levite at the end, is very content and happy to get 10 pieces of silver a year. This is 1,100 pieces of silver all at once. This would have been the equivalent of millions of dollars today. And remember that it was actually 1,100 pieces of silver that the Philistine lords offered to Delilah to find out Samson's secret in the previous chapter. So there's a, there's a link, a purposeful link between these two stories. Some people try and argue that Micah's mother actually is Delilah, uh, and that Micah might be Samson's son. Well, I don't think the text gives us any real indication um, that that is um, the case at all. It seems like this story actually happens before um, Samson. Well, the point is, um, this woman has lost a whole lot of money, and she's upset, and she utters a curse over whomever had stolen it. Well, 
bad news, it turns out that it was her own son, Micah, who stole her money. He gets freaked out. He hears the curse, and so he fesses up. It was me. I, I took your money, and he gives it back to her. And her response is, is pretty strange. Um, I consider myself a pretty reasonable and level-headed fellow, but if I found out that Emma stole a million dollars from me, I think that I'd be a little bit upset um, with her. Um, but not Micah's mom. Maybe, I don't know, maybe she never disciplined him. Um, maybe he knows that he can get away with whatever he wants. Whatever's going on here, he has no problem going and saying, hey, I stole millions of dollars from you. And notice the language of her response in verse 2. Blessed be my son by the Lord. Why is that her response? Well, she's panicking. Uh, she's freaking out. She's just now realizing that she has cursed her own son without knowing it. And so she's trying to somewhat kind of balance that out by pronouncing this blessing on him. Now the whole story so far just feels a little bit off, but it's not quite clear why yet. So Micah returns the money in full. It seems like he might have a happy ending. Maybe things aren't off at all, because in verse 3 the mother says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Alright, it sounds pretty good. No mention of Baal, um, no Ashtaroth, no, no false gods here. She's dedicating her money to God, the Lord. Remember, Lord in all caps. It's not the word Lord, it's always God's personal name. She is dedicating the money to Yahweh. That's good. But unfortunately, she keeps talking. She should have just stopped there, uh, but she doesn't. I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Uh-oh. We have taken a sudden bad turn. Yes, she's dedicating the money to God, but she's dedicating it for the purpose of having it made into an image of God. Right, what's, what's the big deal? What's, what's wrong with that? Well, the second commandment is what's wrong with that. After God rescued Israel from Egypt back in Exodus, after he saved them, he gave them grace. After that, he then gives them the law. Not laws that if they kept, they could be saved. They had already been rescued. But gracious laws that told them how to live and to operate as God's people. Right? The law was good and was designed for the people's good. You can find it in Exodus 20 or in Deuteronomy 5. The first commandment is that you are to have no other gods. Right? That's what we've seen Israel struggle with throughout this book so far. They're constantly choosing Baal or Ashtaroth or going after these other false gods. But now we're looking at a second commandment problem. The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Alright, so, so not only was Israel not to use idols or statues of other gods, but they were not to make images of Yahweh for the purpose of worship. Right? God forbade the use of all images in worship. Let's pause there for a second. Why, why is that? What's, what's the big deal with images? Why everyone else seems to use images, and everyone else, people often who even claim the title Christian. Uh, the big deal this week, right, if you've been paying attention in the news, is the Pope is coming to New York City um, this week. It's a really big deal. It's going to be a mass with like 20,000 people. I wanted to get tickets just to witness it and observe it, and I'm not important enough. Joanna got a ticket, and I'm really jealous. because um, I would just like to witness it and to be able to um, watch it. Um, but he's coming, and in this service, uh, as Joanna will see, if you ever, I, almost every Christmas Eve I watch Midnight Mass online just because I like to just 
kind of see what people do, and it's an interesting um, study. But if you watch any of these services, you'll see um, that images play a very central role in their ceremonies. I love popping into old churches when I'm in Manhattan to try and see a new one. St. Patrick's is, is amazing. But whenever you go into one of these, you'll see people, right, kneeling down and praying before statues. Now, let's be fair. Uh, Catholics would argue strongly that they are not worshiping those statues. So we don't want to accuse them of something that they say they're not doing. But what they would say is that they are using those images as a worship aid. Right? They're using the images and the statues to help focus their minds in prayer on the Lord. But that's precisely the problem that the second commandment addresses because it forbids the use of images in worship. There was an article in the New York Post um, last year about this, this um, church up in the Bronx, this big Catholic church. And somehow, during the service, they had this life-size Jesus crucifix. So a crucifix is you have the cross and Jesus is still on it, uh, right? Well, they had like a five-foot one. And somehow, in the middle of the service, someone stole um, the crucifix. I don't know what someone's going to do with a five-foot Jesus on a cross. Like, if they want to put that on their wall. or I don't know. But in the middle of a church service, these people had um, the gall to go in and steal um, this thing. But as I was reading the article, it was interesting. The priest was just devastated about it. And he said, because uh, people would touch it as they went in and would kind of help them focus their minds. And then the last sentence of the article said, the cross, that cross means so much to people passing by. Uh, we could save just one or two people by just them looking at it. Right? So here was this idea that people would just see this image of Jesus and they would be saved. Right? So here's this image working in worship and salvation in some way. But listen, let's not just pile on other people because we're often not any better. We often do the same thing. Take, this is one, uh, don't be offended. Um, this is one that I struggle with sometimes or have issue with. Take pictures of Jesus. Um, I know people who like putting pictures of Jesus on the wall and they kind of look at them when they pray and that helps them focus in prayer. And, and if it helps, then, then what's the harm? Well, the problem is our first point. Um, making or using any image of God or Jesus, I'm not saying you're worshiping the images, but just using the image necessarily reinvents God. It, it reshapes or depicts God as something He is not. You see, the reason that God forbids the use of images in worship is that any image automatically reveals some part of God's nature while at the same time concealing another part. Does that make sense? Is that, is that clear? Any image of God automatically distorts him because no image can do him justice. So, for example, pictures of Jesus. He's generally very good looking. He's a good looking guy. Um, he's, he's gentle. He's somewhat feminine often. He's always white um, for some reason. Apparently, these people have never been to the Middle East. I don't understand why Jesus is white. And he always has perfectly styled long hair. Um, first off, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:14 that at that time, culturally, it was a disgrace for a man to wear long hair. Now, that was culturally a thing at that time. So guys, if you're rocking the long hair, you're fine. Don't, don't worry about it. But the point is that Jesus would not have been doing something then that was cult culturally inappropriate. He would not have been doing something then that was considered as feminine. Now, Jewish men wore their hair short. So Jesus probably wore his hair short. Right? So this picture isn't very helpful in the first place. 
But the point is that we have these pictures of super gentle Jesus. His hands are open. He's, sometimes he's hugging kids or, or something. There was one series a while back that Conan O'Brien got a hold of and was making fun of. It was like Jesus playing sports with little kids. Like Jesus is kicking the soccer ball and Jesus is shooting the basketball like with all these little children. And uh, it's, just, it's just strange. Um, but you have these pictures of Jesus and he looks all nice and humble and gentle. And those things that it's emphasizing about Jesus are true. He is humble. He is inviting. He does love and care for children. But that same picture is showing us nothing about the deity or the glory of Jesus, about his justice or about his wrath or about his might or his power. So you see, any picture of Jesus or God necessarily distorts him because he is so amazing and he is so glorious that no image can properly reflect all that he is. That's why images in worship are forbidden. Does that make sense that I, I explain that? No image can do him justice. They necessarily mislead us. They convey false ideas about God. Now, I'm always hesitant to see a movie of a book that I love because I know that the images of that movie will then invade my mind and shape now how I see those characters, right? Have you ever experienced this? I love the Lord of the Rings books, and I've loved them since I was a kid. And the movies were pretty good as well. Not the Hobbit movies, they're terrible. Lord of the Rings movies, really good. But now, when I read the Lord of the Rings books, I can't imagine Frodo without seeing Elijah Wood, right? This new movie character has now become Frodo in my mind. The image has influenced how I now look at the book and the person that is revealed in that book. Right? The same thing happens when we use images in worship in any way. That image of Jesus that you're using is influencing how you are thinking about Jesus. And it's concealing some important things about Him. All right, listen, maybe you don't use images at all. Maybe you don't have pictures of Jesus or use them. But listen, you're not off the hook. You're still susceptible to the same problem. Because the use of images is more of a surface issue. It's more of a symptom of a deeper-seated problem. And it's a problem that every one of us struggles with. And it is the desire to fashion and to shape God in our own image. Right? We, we may not use idols or pictures, but we all have this inherent tendency to try and redefine God. We struggle with letting God be himself, and we tend to try and dictate to him who he can be and what he can do. So people always, you hear people say stuff like, oh, I can never believe um, in a God who does this. Or I could never, my God does, doesn't do that. My God does this. Or, we all do this. Um, all, people do this a lot with love. Everybody loves that God is love. So someone will say to you, oh, I believe in, in a God of love. Listen, I, I do too. Um, but I also believe in a God of holiness and a God of, of justice because he is all of those things together because that is how he reveals himself in the word. When I latch on to one of his attributes that I like while ignoring others that I'm uncomfortable with, I am not submitting to God as he has revealed himself. I am redefining him. I am telling him that he has to submit to me and what I think that he should be like and do. Right, people do this um, with Calvinism. 
Everybody's listening now. I said the word. I said the Voldemort or something, right? Everybody knows that I'm a Calvinist. It's no, it's no secret. Um, but since most people don't understand what that means, they can be freaked out by that. Oh, Calvinists don't pray or Calvinists don't um, share the gospel or Calvinists eat children or something um, like that. No, uh, not at all. Uh, and by the way, sometime soon, we're going to take a couple of weeks and we're going to teach through um, what that means. We're going to explain and walk through um, the points of Calvinism and why it's important. Not because of Calvin. Who cares about Calvin? It's just a title that summarizes what we believe the Bible accurately teaches. And guys, listen, I know most of you. You're, most of you are Calvinists and you don't even know it. Uh, you don't even use the term. Because all we mean by that is that God is sovereign over everything, including salvation. It means that salvation belongs to Him. That from beginning to end, salvation is God's work and God's doing, not ours. So people, not understanding what Calvinism is, will sometimes say, Oh, I could never believe in a God who chooses who is saved. Well, that's a problem. Why? Because the Bible says that God chooses who is saved. Ephesians 1 says he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. Romans 9.16, it depends not on human will or exertion, not on us, but on God who has mercy. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Right? So, you see the problem. If you're going to say um, that God doesn't choose, well, then you have to do something with these verses that explicitly says God does choose. Right? The point is that we are to submit ourselves to him and what he reveals about himself to us, whether or not we like it or understand everything about it. You're either going to believe him as he reveals himself, or you're going to try and redefine him um, to be what you think he should be like. Right? False religion always tries and redefines God. We all have little ways that we try and do this with him. It is the God that you are worshiping, God as he reveals himself in the Bible, or God as you want him to be. Right? Are you aware of some of the tendencies, um, the ways that you tend to try and redefine him? Let's get back to the story. All right? we won't, I won't say that word again for a while, but we're going to walk through it and, and explain it here in the near future. Right? False religion doesn't stop there with redefining God. Um, it also, once you've redefined him, false religion will then necessarily also worship him wrongly. Right? If you've got who God is wrong, well, then you're necessarily going to relate to him in the wrong way. So Micah takes this silver. Her mom, his mom, by the way, is like, oh, yeah, 1100 Let's dedicate to the Lord. Here's $200. Um, she keeps the 900 for herself. I think that's pretty funny. Um, so she sets up. He, he takes the idol. He makes this image, and he sets up a shrine in his own house. And a shrine is just it's, just, it's a place of worship. He also makes an ephod. Remember the ephod? We talked about this back with Gideon. Um, the ephod was the garment that only the high priest wore. It was a special kind of vest that went over, had the urim and the thurum on the breastplate, and it was kind of used for the discerning of God's will. But the main point is that there was one ephod, there was supposed to be one high priest in one place of worship at Shiloh, right? This, that was the exclusive place of worship for God's people at that time. But Micah is here setting up his own 
rival place of worship with his own idol, ephod, and with his own priest, his, his son. Which is also a problem because a priest had to be a Levite. His son was not um, a Levite. But what Mike is doing is he, he's decided that he's going to worship God how he wants to worship God, not how God has revealed um, that he is to be worshipped. Well, what's the problem? Well, we covered it in the discussion of images. By worshiping how we want, we set ourselves above God. We declare that we know better and that our ways are superior to His and that we don't care what He wants or thinks. And the big problem with this is that it ruins any hope of actual relationship. Think about it like this. God has been very gracious in giving me the most low-maintenance, easygoing wife in the world. Right? Melissa is just, she's the best. And I'm fortunate that we, we mostly like doing the same things, but not everything. And one of the things that I had to learn and that I still struggle to learn is that I need to relate to her in the way that she likes to be related to, not in the way that I think that she should like to be related to. Right? You got that? That's how any relationship works. Right? I'm not a great communicator. Um, people just assume that pastors are, are great communicators because our job is to stand up here and, and to communicate. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm, uh, I'm necessarily good at interpersonal kind of one-on-one -on -one deep um, dialogue and communication. I am much better in front of hundreds of people or a thousand people. I'm much more comfortable in that environment um, than I am kind of private one-on-one -on -one, um, with people. And that's not a good thing. I'm not bragging about that at all. But so when I've had a long day of preaching or teaching, all I want to do is to go home and crash in front of the game. Um, and I want my wife to, to do that with me. Um, I want her to relate to me. I want to relate to her on my terms, right? right. Less talking, um, more watching of the game. Um, just being honest, it's terrible. Uh, Melissa, though, she loves communicating. She loves talking. She, she's great at it. And good, deep, uh, personal, um, open communication is her love language. Right? That's what really speaks to her and ministers to her in relationship. And so by often refusing to communicate with her as she rightly desires... I am demonstrating that I often care more about my wishes and my desires than hers. But I am saying in that instance that I care more about myself and what I want than Melissa and what she wants. I think that I can dictate the terms of the relationship and what she should be good with. But that's not, that's not relationship. Right? She is a person. She is a unique individual and she works in a certain way. My job is to understand her and to understand how she works and then to make every effort that I can to relate to her on the terms that she desires to be related on. Does that make sense? Is that clear? It's not up to me and how I think she should relate to me, but it's up to her and how I should meet her there and relate to her. It's no different with God. We do not get to decide how to worship Him. If we keep insisting uh, that we get to do it how we want, then we demonstrate that we don't actually care about knowing Him and being in relationship with Him. As a person, and as the supreme person, as a divine person, as God, He especially gets to set the terms of the relationship. He decides how we will relate to Him and worship Him. And it's our job to submit to that. Micah is not doing that. I want you to make sure and notice that everything that's happening here looks very 
religious. Um, religious activity is increasing. It is, it's spreading in this story, and it looks almost right. But in only being almost right, it is entirely wrong. And the point of all of this is that worship must be conducted according to God's word and not according to our ideas. But none of you are setting up house shrines with idols. Um, so what are some of the ways that we worship God falsely? Um, what are some of the ways that we worship the right God in the wrong way? Now, there are more um, than can be mentioned. We have many things um, that we do that aren't found in the Bible that we just assume God will bless and honor uh, because we're used to doing them. Right, so take example, or for example here, um, bear with me for a second. No one's allowed to be offended. I said you can't be offended, so don't be offended. Let's talk for a second about altar calls. All right, we're going to talk for a second about altar calls. The, the invitation, you know what I'm talking about, right? Altar calls, walking forward um, to the front, altar calls. Uh, some of us are so familiar with these, we're so used to them, we were raised on them. Everybody's doing it. It's a drug. Everybody's doing it. Um, but we just accepted um, that they are good. But when people think that walking down the aisle to the fifth stanza of I Surrender All is the same thing as entering the kingdom and becoming a Christian, we've got a problem. Um, that's, that's not salvation. That's, that's magic. I, I walk an aisle. God will save me. Now, I want to address this for a second because it's something that I get, I get asked a lot. Um, so I don't want you to think that I'm just ignoring you or that I don't care. I got asked this, I think, in the interview at the very beginning, three years ago, or however many years ago when I started here, and I get intermittently asked by different people here and there, why don't you guys do an altar call? Why You should really call people up front at the end of the service. So let me say that I, I'm hearing you, and I want to address that and explain to you fairly um, why uh, we don't do that here um, at, at Woodside. Let me give you a few quick reasons um, why we don't do altar calls. We don't have time to get into this in detail, so if you do have questions, please, um, you're not going to offend me, come find me afterwards, and let's just, let's have a conversation um, about it. All right, a few, I think I have six reasons. Uh, let me explain why we don't do this. Number one reason we don't do altar calls, and this should be the only reason, this is all we need, uh, we should be able to stop here. Uh, we don't do altar calls here at Woodside because they are unbiblical. Right. We believe that the Bible is God's word and that God's word tells us how we should worship God. Right? That's the whole point of this. God tells us how to respond and to worship him. Well, guess what? In thousands of pages and in 66 books, there is not a single altar call in the entire Bible. There's nothing even close to resembling an altar call. There's no sinner's prayer. There's no every head bowed, every eye closed, just, just raise your hand or, or just walk up front and, and be saved. It's not there. And if it's not in the Bible, then why would we do it here in our church service? Right? So conversations should stop there. Um, but just in case you need more reasoning, here we go. Um, second reason why we don't do them here. Um, I think church history is very important. Um, not as important as scripture, of course, um, but it helps to confirm um, scripture. Well, there was no such thing as an altar call in the first 800, 1850 years of church history. So from Jesus to Charles Finney in the 19th century, there was not a single altar call. It just wasn't there. It didn't happen. And you should always be concerned about new facts. If it didn't happen for 1,800 years and all of a sudden it starts happening, you should ask, whoa, 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 did the whole church get this wrong for 1,800 years? Have you guys got it right? What's, what's going on here? So if it's not in the Bible at all, and if it's not in the first 1,800 years of church history, well, then why would we do it here at Woodside? Number three, 
why we don't do altar calls is because there's great danger in altar calls because they have a tendency to be emotionally manipulative. Um, I have a very clear and sad uh, memory. It's funny now, but it's actually really sad. Um, of one time, about a year ago, um, Emma's, how old is Emma now? Um, three and a half. So she's two um, or two and a half. And I remember finding something wrong and real, knowing for sure as a parent, Emma did this. Emma knows she wasn't supposed to do this, and Emma did this. And as a good parent, right, I, I pressed and I pressed and I pressed because I knew she did it. I wasn't going to let her get away with it. So I pressed and I pressed and I pressed her until she finally broke down and confessed. And I said, ha-ha. What a good parent I am. I, I stuck with it. I really pressed her, and I, I stuck with it and didn't let, her get her, didn't let her get away with it until she confessed. Only to be horrified briefly, uh, not very much later, to find out that it was Melissa and not Emma who did the thing that I thought was done. Um, so, do you see what happened? I had emotionally manipulated and pressed my own daughter to say something that was not true. Right, just through my uh, uh, position of authority and through the words and the pressure that I was using, I was able to get her to say something that wasn't actually true and that she didn't actually mean. Oh, it just broke my heart. Uh, oh, terrible parenting. It was an abuse of authority and power. I had, I had to repent of that, and I cannot do that uh, anymore. That was sin. Um, and in the same way, my stomach really starts to turn when I hear pastors slip into invitation sales mode. Right? You know, the, the lights go down, the, the invitation hymn kind of starts to play. I mean, he starts speaking in this, he, he tells some tear-jerking story. You start talking about hell or hellfire, damnation, something, and there's five verses of the song. No one's come forward yet, so oh, we're going to keep singing until somebody comes forward. Today is the moment of salvation. Or, or you are a sinner and you need to come. And just he presses and he presses and he presses. Eventually, somebody is going to break. Eventually, someone is going to uh, respond emotionally um, to that pressure. Guys, listen, that's not, that's not salvation. Um, that's not repentance. That's not conversion. Uh, that's emotional manipulation. It's, it's, it's dangerous. I'm not saying everyone who does altar calls does that, but it happens often enough that we want to stay away from it. Number four is related to number three. Since they can be emotionally manipulative, the altar call ends up producing many false professions of Christ. There was one study of over 100 people that had gone forward for an invitation. 30 of them ended up being baptized. So that's 70 right away that just disappeared. And we never saw any fruit or anything at all. So we're already down to 30%. And of those 30 who got baptized, only 10 ended up actually showing up again later for church. Ten, that's 90 people who made supposed professions of faith that never gave any fruit or evidence of their being actual salvation. I've read other studies that argue that upwards of 96% of individuals in like these big Billy Graham rallies or altar calls that will come forward actually aren't saved at all and never show up at a church because they get in the moment, it's emotionally charged, people are going forward and just bam, they just go with everybody else. So some people, the danger with altar calls is that it links physically coming forward with being spiritually saved. So people are tempted to think, uh, oh, were you saved? Oh yeah, I walked, uh, walked the aisle when I was eight and went up and prayed um, the sinner's prayer. No, that doesn't mean or prove anything. Jesus doesn't say walk the aisle. He, he says repent and believe. He, he says deny yourself. He says take up your cross and follow me. All right, so uh, the fifth point is related to that. 
is the problem with altar calls is that they are great at getting decisions. They are great at numbers. We had 30 people saved um, today, right? Great at getting decisions, but notice in Scripture, we are never once called to get decisions. We are called to make disciples. Right? Just because someone comes up front or prays a prayer doesn't mean that they're actually saved. Right? We're not concerned just with the point of decision. We're concerned with the entire process from beginning to end. In fact, I can't know what happened at the beginning. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. Right? I can't confirm that someone's actually been believed, a believer until I'm starting to see evidence of that in their lives. We're called to make disciples, and the, the use of altar calls confuses that. All right, last one, and I'll stop. Number six. Finally, um, the use of altar calls confuses the doctrine of salvation by grace alone without works. Because it's often taught or implied that coming forward, a work that we do is critical to our salvation. Wrong, right? It is God alone who saves, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Walking forward does not save you. It doesn't do anything. I'll stop there um, for time's sake, but most basically, you will not find altar calls at Woodside Community Church because you don't find them in the Bible. That's it. Uh, that's enough right there. And it's not just some neutral thing that some use and don't, and it's just a preference. No, we don't use them because we actually think they're unhelpful and they're, they're harmful. They confuse rather than clarify. Right? They're not in the Bible. It is God that saves sinners by His Spirit through His Word. It's not sinners who play a role in that by walking up to the front of a church. Guys, listen, we want you to respond to the gospel. Yes, that's important. You must respond to the gospel. But we want you to respond to the gospel biblically. Right? And so when Jesus comes and the first words out of His mouth, He says, repent and believe. Repent and and believe. And I think we're going to need to take uh, time at some point here in the near future to, to really clarify what that means, what it really looks like for us to respond um, to that and respond to the word and respond um, to the gospel, right? But it's not necessarily a sinner's prayer. It's not necessarily walking forward uh, an aisle. It's a complete reorientation of your life and your perspective and how you look at your sin and yourself and God. It's about being broken for your sin and it's about being attracted to who God is and desiring what it is that he has done for you in Jesus Christ. Listen, the response that I'm looking for is for you to see Jesus and to say, oh, I, I want that. I, that's, I, I see that and recognize that and desire that. That's the start. Right? That's, that's good. Um, I don't care if you say a, a magic prayer or words or whatever. I, I have no idea when I got saved. Um, I, that really bothered me. Um, for a long time. Um, it, was, it was really uncomfortable with that. And I bet some of you are in the same um, shoes that I am. But it doesn't, this, this point of entrance, this decision, whatever, listen, it doesn't matter. Are you resting and trusting in the Lord right now? That's what I want to know. Is your only hope in Jesus Christ and His grace and His love and His mercy and His provision for you? Are you, are you starting to hate your sin? And are you starting to, to love the things that He loves? Is the direction of your life being changed, right? That's what we're looking for, right? Not these decisions, but we're looking for disciples who are more and more by God's grace starting to become like Jesus and starting to follow Him. All right, so all that was to say, um, just to give an example and to, at least in fairness, explain to you um, why we don't do them. All that's to say is that worship must be conducted according to God's Word, right? 
That's what this is about. Right? False, mistaken religion always does something extra, always adds something to it. It worships God according to our ideas or our techniques or things that we think can get us numbers, but God's word is what matters. Last point real quick, and then we'll finish. Uh, not only does false religion reinvent God and worship Him wrongly, but false religion always uses God. And we'll see this more um, next week, um, so kind of hold that thought. Verse 7, we're introduced to this young Levite from Bethlehem. He, again, he'll be in the story next week. Um, but he comes to Micah. Micah ends up hiring him. Now he's got a real Levite. Now he's set. And look at what he says in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Guys, false religion always tries to use God. It manipulates God into serving self. False religion is about getting what you want from God. It assumes that God exists to serve you. It assumes that God owes uh, us when we do certain things for him. Micah now thinks that God is in his debt. Now he can get what he wants from God, which is prosperity, which is money, which is um, blessing. And this is our default mode of operation. Since we think that our activity equals our identity, that we are what we do, and that it is our performance that leads to our acceptance, because guys, that's how the world works, that if you do good enough, you will then be loved, right? If you earn it, people will love you. Well, we naturally then assume that that's how God operates. If we do enough good, he has to accept us and bless us. So we, just, we go out of our way and we kill ourselves with all kinds of rituals and rules and all these things that we feel like we have to do if we, if we just pray enough or if we come to church enough or if we just serve enough. You know, God will bless us. Or if we don't do certain bad things, then God will bless us. Have you ever heard people complain about the, uh, the idea that, um, oh, why do, why do good things happen to bad people? Or, no. <laughs> Sorry. Man, way off. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever people wonder about that? Well, that's rooted in this, this idea that if we do good, we will get good. First of all, the problem with that is that there is no one good. Uh, that's what Romans 3 says. None of us are good. So there is no such thing as a bad per thing happening to a good person, except for Jesus. Um, but second, the problem with that is that if we do good, we'll get good. That's not the gospel. That's, that's karma. That's what Miss Richard is dealing with over there in India. If I do enough good, I will get good. No, that's, that's not how it works. That is using God to manipulate Him and to do these things so that you can get from Him what you want. Guys, that's not relationship. That's, that's manipulation. That's selfishness. It's only using someone to get what you want. And that's what false religion is all about. That's what this whole story is all about. As we'll see in the next chapter... Man, Micah, he's going to lose everything. It's not going to go well for poor uh, Micah next week. Uh, but we'll come back to that. Uh, false religion reshapes and redefines God into something that we like him to be. It worships him how we want to worship him. And it uses him to get what we want. How do you know if this is you? How do you know if you um, struggle um, with this? Well, first of all, you know because you do um, and because I do. We all um, struggle um, with this. Here are th three quick tests that you can give yourself to diagnose how badly you're struggling with this. Number one, you are more concerned with looking spiritual than actually being holy. Those are two different things. It's really easy to look spiritual. I, I put on my suit, I 
brush my hair, I say holy sounding, spiritual sounding things, and you look at me and you think, oh, he's a pastor, he's, he's holy, uh, he's spiritual. Uh, that's a pretty easy front um, to put on. But paradoxically, um, being holy often actually doesn't look spiritual at all. Um, because there's lots of humility and there's lots of openness about uh, our brokenness and our struggle and our sin. Because it's not about me and about how good I am. It's about God who has been good for me. So when I'm resting in Him, I can be open with my brokenness and with my struggle. If my concern is with actually being holy rather than looking spiritual to impress you guys, then I'm not worried um, about kind of your perspective on me, you know, kind of how I'm um, doing. Uh, it's not about how I present or how I look. Um, it's about what God is actually doing um, in my heart. Are you more concerned with looking spiritual or are you more concerned with being holy? Number two, um, this one's pretty simple. You're consistently doing things that God has said not to do. Now, we all struggle with that at times, but First John talks about the course of life, a pattern of life, a consistency in gladly doing what we know we're not supposed to do. Right? That's a sign that you struggle with this. And number three, and finally, um, you may struggle with this, if you frequently require or expect things of others that God does not. That makes sense, right? You require, you expect something of someone else that God doesn't expect of them, right? So if someone walks in, you're like, oh, you'd never dress like that and come to church. Or, oh, you have to wear pants. Um, or women, you have to wear dresses if you're going um, to come to church. Well, where's that in God's Word? Nowhere. Right? So if you find yourself requiring of other people things that God himself doesn't require, then it's a good sign um, that this um, is a problem. Guys, listen, false religion is so dangerous because it tries to use God instead of trying to love him. And guys, God will not be used. Um, so next week we're going to look in more detail at false worship. We're going to look at what the solution to it is and what true worship is. But this week, uh, this, I want to close by asking you, are you submitting to God as he reveals himself in his word? Or are you attempting to believe in a God of your own making? Are you um, worshiping him in spirit and in truth on the way he wants to be worshipped? Or are you worshiping him how you want him to be worshipped? Are you allowing God to use you or are you trying to use him? Are you trying to control him just a little bit or are you willing to surrender yourself to him? Ellis, I'm obviously not going to ask you to walk down um, to the front um, here, um, but I do uh, want to ask you to honestly consider the answer to those questions. I am going to hold out to you the solution to your struggles with false religion. And that solution is obviously the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. While we were busy trying to reshape and fashion God in our own image, he was busy sending his son who is the image of the invisible God. Right? We don't need other images because Jesus is the one who perfectly reveals to us who God is and what he is like. Guys, false religion is just so stupid um, because the true religion is so beautiful. It's such a waste of time and so silly because what's actually there and real is so much better than everything that we try. We try and manipulate God to serve us when, in fact, He has already served us in the most amazing way possible. He sent Jesus to live and to die in our place. True religion is about being in relationship with Him. It's about trusting Him and resting in Him and submitting to Him as He has revealed Himself to us. And guys, it's worth it um, because He is good. True is always better than bad. Um, and it's hard to believe, um, but God's way is always better um, than our way. 
And so let's bow, um, let's close our time um, with a word of prayer, um, and then we will conclude. Father, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to stand and deliver it. Um, Father, I feel very um, humbled, um, uh, slightly intimidated um, with the opportunity um, to do that. Um, so I ask um, for you to be working um, through me and through your word in this time. Father, show us the areas um, where we tend towards um, false worship. Show us the areas that every one of us has where we try and redefine and reshape you to be like we want. Show us where we worship you wrongly and how we sometimes try to use and manipulate you. But Father, most importantly, I pray that you would show us um, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would show us um, how good he is. While we were pursuing other things and while we were trying to redefine you, um, Father, you are running after us and pursuing us um, through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that there would be a great response to the gospel. I pray that you would grant faith and repentance. I pray that you would show um, people and help them to feel the weight of their sin and to hate that sin, Lord. And I, and I pray that you would draw their desires and their loves and their heart um, towards Jesus Christ. Father, he's the goal. Um, loving him is the goal of everything that we do. And I pray that that would happen here um, in this time. Father, I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.